0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of SF Crossing the Gulf. I'm Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. And today we'll be talking about C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces, a book from the 1950s. Um, I hope people will apologize. I'm recovering from a bit of a cough, so if my voice sounds weird, uh, I'm going to try and power through it. I'm getting better. So I think we'll be able to to make it all the way through. Um, Mm -hmm. And I also have cough drops. (laughs) <laughs> but so karen this was this one was one of your choices. Why don't you uh talk a little bit about why
1: why you wanted to to talk about this one in particular okay well, um, this is a book that directly tapped into my love of myth and reworked myth at that um I think that it's actually lewis's best work i'm 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 kind of almost angry that people don't know more about it. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows about the Space Trilogy, everybody talks about Narnia, and um, I'm actually not a fan of the Space Trilogy myself, and I think Lewis got better as a writer as he got older. Mm-hmm. I think he, uh, especially after he married, I think he had far better insight into what women are like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and I do think that when you look at Till We Have Faces, you're seeing a writer who has grown, and who is is really um, at the peak of his craft. So... I think of it as uh, a bit of a hidden gem for some people, uh, especially people who sort of dislike Lewis at the very sound of his name. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and I really just wanted the chance to be able to discuss it. And, and let me say, though, that um, every time I read it, I'm just like, goodness, just, there's just so much in here. And it's, it's almost, it's a very challenging book in some ways.
0: But, um, but yes, there you have it. Yes, it is, it is dense. Again, it's sort of like the
1: problem we had with Stapleton. You, you can't just skim. You can't skim. And um, at least with Stapleton, because it's almost encyclopedic, you can sort of pick and choose what you want to talk about. But everything hangs together until we have faces. Mm-hmm. And, and even bits that appear to be the little throwaway details, you, you look at them and you go like, wow, that's insightful. And you kind of want to talk about them. So I will say from now that when I do the summary, I'm focusing on what I think are some of the core, the key areas for the core of the story. But there are all kinds of little side bits and insights and so forth that are absolutely fascinating. Um, not least because of questions of patriarchy, especially the king in the story, mm-hmm. how he deals with the things, how he's portrayed as a character um, how he treats his family and his subjects and how, and how in turn they, they view him and deal with him. That's, that's almost a separate podcast by itself. And I'm going to skim a lot of that aspect, unfortunately, but I do find it very, very fascinating. Um, especially because when you, when you read a lot of early Lewis, you think he's, you know, absolutely a monarchist. And this is in a way, um, a very, um, Realistic and 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 not particularly gilded portrayal of, of of a kingdom of monarchy, it it gives a it's a very real kind of feeling. But in fact, let me if I should just go straight on to summary.
0: Yeah, go for it. Although I let thought, me let me just interject my own personal experience with with Lewis before reading this book. I I'm one of those people. I I had not heard of this before you mentioned it. Um, I read and loved the Narnia books growing up. Um, I had I have not read the Space Trilogy, although I'm I'm you know aware of it. Um, and I had I was aware of Chris, of Lewis's nonfiction Christian writings, you know, Mere Christianity* and *The Screw Tape Letters* and that sort of thing. So that's that's the background
1: that I'm coming from. Okay, *Screw In Tape Letters* notes. is fiction, though. Just checking. Sorry. what? It's, it's, *Screw Tape Letters* is fiction. Oh well, yes. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but as you say, heavily, um, well, yeah, heavily sort of religious fiction, right, way, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, but it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody wants to go and read the screw tape letters, make sure and get the version that has the illustrations like Papas. Ooh, cool. Yeah, anyway, right, and okay, so on to our in. story. <laughs> okay, so first I'm going to tell you the fable, um, the original Greek fable. Right. And it's the usual thing, set up King of Three Daughters. Wait, if anybody actually,
0: if anybody wants to, to go Google it, this is specifically the Psyche and Cupid myth.
1: Yes, precisely that. Okay. So the third is so beautiful that people begin to worship her as a goddess, and, and nobody even dares to ask for her hand in marriage. And Venus, of course, gets jealous of all this attention, so she sends Cupid, her son, to go and, and deal with, um, with Psyche. But Psyche, of course, being so beautiful, Cupid immediately falls for her, sort of carries her off and installs her in a palace and, and um, you know, pretty much marries her. Um, but he, he has this one restriction. She can't look at his face. But then, you know, she's she's very obedient, but she does ask, can my sisters come and visit me? So the sisters come, but they're absolutely insanely jealous of this gorgeous palace and she's got a husband who's basically a god in the true sense of the word Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um, they're they're like no you know we we can't we can't deal with her having all this we gotta mess this up somehow so they persuade her that he's hiding his face because he's actually a, a beast some sort of vile thing that she has to kill so they tell her to try and catch a glimpse of him when he's sleeping so that's what she tries to do she lights a candle she looks on his face and she's, she's, she's looking at him, of course he's gorgeous, so she's just there in adoration. And then he's woken up by a drip of hot wax on his shoulder. And he immediately gets up, chastises her, and vanishes. And uh, they say eventually the sisters die, and apparently Cupid has something to do with this. And um, Psyche starts wandering. First she tries to kill herself, and she's stopped by Pan, God Pan. And eventually she falls into the hands of Venus, who's still feeling a bit vindictive. And sets her to do a lot of impossible tasks, but she manages them. She gets all the help, you know, like from friendly ants and various other things and creatures, and she manages them all. She falls at the last hurdle because she's asked to bring up a box from the underworld that's supposed to contain beauty, and she's not supposed to open it. And of course, when she gets up there, she falls prey to curiosity again, opens it up, and and, and faints. But Cupid, by this time, you know, still loves her, comes in to rescue her. And eventually, of course, it all unfolds happily ever after. Um, Jupiter allows him to be married. Psyche like becomes a goddess. Even Venus forgives her, and it's all fine. Right. So that's the original myth. Now, the interesting thing that Lewis does is he's telling you this, this story, pretty much this whole story, but it's told from the point of view of one of the sisters, one of the one of the evil, jealous sisters. And he's also not setting it in a Greek setting. He's, he's invented a kingdom which is nearest Greece, because they, they do have some influence and, and some, some kind of interaction with, with Greek culture. Right. some
0: some trade, some knowledge mm-hmm. that there is a place
1: called Greece out there somewhere. Exactly, and he interestingly has a character within the court who is a Greek slave, who at times you could say makes connections and, and, and sort of um, parallels with his own culture. So for example, um, he is the one um, in the story the, the princess who is called Psyche, her real name is Istra, and he translates that as Psyche. Um, the land has a goddess called Ungut, and he translates that as Venus. So you begin to see where all the parallels are appearing already. So th- the trick is, though, that of the two sisters before Psyche, Aurel is the one who's telling the story, and her claim to fame is that she is extremely, exceedingly over-the-top ugly. Right. Uh, her sister, Redival is actually quite pretty and golden-haired, and gets a lot of attention and eventually they actually get along quite well when it's just the two of them but what happens is that their mother dies and that's when the Greek slave who's called the Fox comes into the court and is set to tutor them so Aurel starts to um, become more attached to the Fox and kind of maybe leaves Redible a a bit and Redible gets a bit jealous about that and then the real change comes when their father remarries, he marries um, um, a princess or, or some kind of noble from a, a neighboring kingdom for mostly political purposes, and also because he doesn't have a son yet, and he's desperate for a son to, to carry on um, the line. Um, but, you know, when this you know, stepmother comes, she's this tiny, frail, young thing who, of course, the, the king basically kind of mistreats and so forth, and she dies in childbirth, and she leaves behind Psyche, who's the third sister and who is the most beautiful of them all. And she's beautiful in a way that just seems to move everyone. She makes, she makes people feel beautiful by her presence and, and there's just this complete attachment. Now, I say everyone, but Redoval actually gets more jealous because now the attention is completely away from her. She used to be the pretty one and Psyche's completely eclipsed that. Aural is the one who is almost fixated, almost obsessed with Psyche. And I, I honestly don't think that's too um, <laughs> too radical a thing to say. Because oh, no, gonna, no. I think that's the,
0: pretty much the only way you can you can characterize the relationship.
1: Yeah. There's this, there's this bit that when I read it, I just, I just thought it was really, really striking. This is Aurel talking about Psyche. I wanted to be a wife so that I could have been her real mother. I wanted to be a boy so that she could be in love with me. I wanted her to be my full sister instead of my half-sister. I wanted her to be a slave so that I could set her free and make her rich. So that's the kind of love that Orwell has for Psyche.
0: Right, and she also basically kind of acts as Psyche's mother figure since her mother died in childbirth.
1: Yeah, so there's there's definitely a close bond between them, and Psyche also loves her very much. But there is that that thread of obsessiveness in Orwell's love for Psyche. So um, it, it unfolds like the myth where... Um, People, as I said, adore Psyche. And then what happens is that there are lots of problems arising in the land. There's a drought. Um, There's threat of conquest from places all around, political instability. And then there's a plague. And people, at one stage, ask Psyche to walk among them and lay hands on them. And she does that, even though it actually caused her to fall ill as well. And just as in the thing, they start to, to worship her as if she's a goddess. So... Uh, Re- Redival is so jealous about this that she tries to stir up problem- problems, trouble by going to the priest of Unget, who, as you know, is, is actually the goddess of the land, and 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 alerting him to the fact that Psyche is, in a way, stealing people's affection from unget and and dedication from unget But at the same time that she does that, there also, the problems haven't stopped. There's there's still there's still drought. There's still um, there 's still plague, and people are starting to wonder if psyche 's touch is is working so there are these little pockets of of um adoration that have switched over to loathing very very much like celebrity culture you know you mm-hmm. can get a celebrity where people are just absolutely you know. They can do no wrong, and then all of a sudden they fall out of favor, and, and you know, next thing you have an e-true Hollywood story thing going on. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so um, so that's, that's what happens with Psyche, where the people, some of the people actually start to turn against her already. So by the time the, the priest comes to the king, he does, in fact, have some of the backing of the people in his, in his proposal. And his proposal, he goes to the king and he says, all these troubles in the land, unget requires sacrifice. Now, Unget, mind you, accepts blood sacrifices. They have animal sacrifices, and they also have human sacrifices for special occasions. Right. The,
0: the animal so, sacrifices are described as being kind of routine. Right. But it's,
1: it's definitely, we're talking actual blood over, over the stone kind of right. thing. Right. No, nothing metaphorical here. <laughs> yes. So um, when, he, when the priest comes initially to the king, the king at first is convinced when he says, oh, you know, Unget requires royal blood, the king is thinking, oh, they're, they're going to try and kill me. So he's all panicking and trying to backpedal. And then when the priest goes, and we will have the most beautiful, to be our symbolic sacrifice, marriage to the son of Ungit, He he does cetera, he says a very garbled set of words, drives the poor fox insane with his <laughs> Like, this makes no sense, this makes yeah. no sense. But, but, I, love, but, I love the fox. <laughs> yeah, the, the fox was just tearing his hair out because the, the priest was making no sense whatsoever. But the long and the short of it was, Psyche has to go. And the king's they're like, good.
0: oh, oh, you, you just want her? Oh, yeah, sure. take yeah. her. Oh, you know? oh, no problem. Oh, no, yeah, okay. An, that's an extra
1: daughter, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I can spare that one. <laughs> so, um, And and um, so the, the idea is that they're going to take Psyche and expose her in the countryside, and, you know, slow death to the elements. And this is going to be her symbolic sacrifice our marriage the son of Ungit, who's also called the beast. So again, you know, elements of the myth there. So a couple of things happen. First of all, will is she she actually almost fights her father because she's she's trying to save Psyche. She can't believe they're going to send Psyche to her death. And the, the fox, of course, also protests. But it so happens, Psyche's in the dungeon. She's being, um, in fact, guarded by Bardia, who's going to be very important later on. He's a soldier capturing the guard. And Orwell goes to visit Psyche, and at first Bardia won't let her through, so she goes back, and p- picks up a sword, and, and goes and takes a few swings at him. <laughs> <laughs> He kind of, you know, disarms her gently, but he's, he's sort of Im- impressed at uh, what she's done. And he says, okay, look, can go in and see her. So they go in and, and have some, have a sort of a farewell session. And it's very dissatisfying for of Yeah, it goes, because, it goes very badly. <laughs> because Psyche like is actually, you know, she's like, yeah, okay, you know, this is my fate. You know, I, I used to dream about this. I used to think about what was out there beyond the countryside. And yeah, you know, better, better me who can accept it than somebody else who wouldn't be able to. And she's just completely... You know, she's accepting her fate. Yeah, she's she's, she's even happy kind about of it. Almost okay with it. She's Yeah. <laughs> and you know, this this will serve the people and the land and maybe everything will turn out okay and, 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 and Oral's like, but aren't you going to miss me? I know. <laughs> and she's upset because Psyche is is not at all focused on her. But Psyche is not like, you know, um this is so terrible, I'm going to be torn from you forever, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Sure, and and you think... can tell, or- I think the other thing was that Oral really wanted
0: her to be, you know, sobbing so that Oral could come and comfort her.
1: Exactly. And, and
0: she's not, and so Oral doesn't, doesn't get to play the role that she'd imagined for herself.
1: And uh, so now, and,
0: and by the she... end, Oral is sobbing.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's like,
0: oh, your heart is, is
1: not of iron, it's stone, rather. Yes, yes. And, um, so yeah, so it's it's really, I, I'm laughing and I shouldn't be laughing, but I, I mean, it is in a sense a reversal. It's it's really, it's really very much Oral has this script in her head and Psyche is not playing along with the script. Mm-hmm. And you need exactly. to remember that because that kind of happens a couple of times in the story. Yeah. So,
0: um. But yeah, one of the last things that, that Oral says to Psyche in the dungeon is, I only see that you have never loved me.
1: <laughs> yes, it's very dramatic in a way, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Oral, um,
0: Oral's definitely going,
1: yeah, and she she's what a late teenager at this point, so she is, she is, and she does in fact say around that time that you know she was a girl, a silly girl, and so forth. So she's she's not she's not um, she doesn't excuse herself for some of the things that she did or said. She says, you know, this is this is what it's like when you're young, right, right. But 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 the the bond was definitely <clears throat> still there, and she was distressed that psyche was was just happy to just go on to this death in, in what appeared to be a very calm fashion. So then time passes. Orwell doesn't actually go to see the, the end of Psyche because she, she, falls, she fought she with father, so she, she's sick for a while. Um, and when she recovers, she then decides, she, she says to the fox and she says to Vardia, she's going to go to where they um, put Psyche to see if... If the animals have that any remains to be given last rites and so forth, you know, or, or to see what has happened. So off she goes with Bardia to um, look at where Psyche was left and the place is empty. So they journey on a little farther and eventually they come to this place which is like this really gorgeous valley. And across the river there's Psyche. So she says Psyche says to Oral, "Yes, you know, I've asked to see you and you can come across her, but Bardia, you know, you can't come." And Bardia just accepts it because Bardia is actually a very religious man, so for him Psyche is still very much kind of dedicated to the son of Ungit and and kind of semi-divine. So he just he just happily goes along whatever she says and doesn't question it. So, um Psyche goes over to sorry, Oral goes over to Psyche and they embrace and they have a marvelous reunion. And Psyche brings her um, berries on a leaf to eat and um, fills her hands with spring water and, and, and gives her water to drink. And everything is going swimmingly. Um, and Psyche says, what happened? And she said, you know, no, it's all true. You know, there, there is a son of Angit. He is my husband and he is, he is a god and he is amazing and I am so in love and everything is perfect and, and so forth. So already um, Orwell is starting to... Ask yourself, what's happening here, you know. But then, what really is the is the point of complete fracture? Is that psyche starts talking about palace and and beautiful things and these are the things you should dream about. And and Oral's like, what palace? Yeah, she's well, she says, says,
0: yeah, she's like, you know, let's let's go into the palace. And and Oral says, is it far? Mm-hmm. And and psyche's like, we're here.
1: Yeah, it, it's right it,
0: here. It's all around. Yeah, it.
1: and and she's like, but you know, how 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 can you not see it? And and then they're talking, and they realize that when Psyche brought the food for Oral, Oral saw a leaf um, with berries on it, and Psyche talking about bringing her food on on most cho- choices um, platters, and when um, Psyche drank water from, sorry, when Oral drank water from Psyche's hands. Psyche is saying, but I, I brought you the, the best goblet, you know, with wine. And they're just, they're just like having this complete fracture of perception. Right, they are
0: literally inhabiting different universes at that
1: point. <laughs> exactly. So, so Orwell starts to freak out. She begins to think, you know, no, wait a minute. You know, she, this, this is madness. This is madness. I can't wrap my head around this at all. So eventually they part. Um, but, you know, Psyche says Orwell can come back. Oral goes back over the river, and because it's late, she and Barty just just camp there for the night. And then during the night, Oral gets up, goes to the river to get a drink, looks up, and she sees the palace. Now, the seeing of the palace is a bit where Kieran and I have some variation. <laughs> no, actually, of this stuff.
0: I, 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 no. Hmm. That's not, I think, where, where you and I disagree most. Because she, she does see something through the mist. And mm-hmm. she admits that whenever she tells people about this further on in the story, that she always leaves that bit out. And mm-hmm. she's, she's honest about the fact that she kind of had, want, had not wanted to have even seen that glimpse. Right. Right? Because well. that makes it all harder for her to, in honesty, do what she's going to do later. Right. But that's not really the point where I have an issue. The point I have an issue is right at up front. As soon as she crosses the river, she never sees the palace. She she only sees the berries. She only sees the hands with the water. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It, it uh-huh. feels like she wasn't given a chance to see all this first. You know, uh-huh. she, she never made a choice to reject it until uh-huh. she already had reason to reject it.
1: Now... In a way, you're not wrong because Oral pretty much says the same thing herself. She exactly. said, you know, what's the use of a sign which is itself only another riddle? You know, mm-hmm. why Why would they, um, you know, what was it saying? You know, it might have been a true seeing the cloud over my mortal eyes may have been lifted for a moment. It might not. What would be easier than for one distraught and not maybe so fully awakened as she seemed, gazing at a mist in a half like to fancy what had filled her thoughts for so many hours? So... She's, she's already backtracking, and she's already thinking twice, and as you said, because she initially went there and saw nothing, even to then go back and have this glimpse, you know, you might argue, well, you know, no, this wasn't quite enough. So, so we, will, we, we will hold that, we will hold yeah, we'll, that. Yeah, uh, we'll hold that there, and, and we'll go <laughs> on to the rest of the story. Right. So, um, she, she's, she's really confused, but she talks for a while to Bardia but um about the situation and as i said you know he's actually a very religious person but the kind of religious person who doesn't meddle with the gods right, right. so he's and kind of like you know what i'm happy she's alive but you know she's still a sacrifice and you know we're not taking her back she doesn't want to come back and and you know everything everything is probably as it should be
0: and and, don't and he also believes that the nobles still have some divine blood in them Precisely. And and so. that's the other thing. He's like, I'm not only not messing with the gods, I'm not messing with you. This is not this exactly. is so above my pay grade.
1: Yes, exactly. So, you know, oh and um I'm sorry, I actually made a mistake. I said the beast. The term was actually the brute. The brute. So right. um so you know, to him Psyche is now the bride of the brute, and that is her title, and, and he's not gonna do anything <laughs> to upset that world order, um that, that order of the universe. So then um, you know, they go back home. And um but already Psyche's starting to think things like, you know, I would have killed Psyche rather than leave her to the heat or hunger of a monster. So she's already starting to yeah, have her thoughts in a particular yeah, her, direction.
0: Her love is starting to get twisted really fast.
1: Yes. So then she goes and talks to the fox. hmm Yeah, but even even this, I mean she's she's debating because she also says she's happy, said my heart. Whether it's madness or a god or a monster or whatever it is, she's happy. You've seen that for yourself. She's 10 times happier there in the mountain than you could ever make her. Leave her alone, don't spoil it, don't mar what you've learned you can't make. So already she's realizing that it's not just a question of whether or not Psyche's insane, but it's a question of she recognizes the happiness Right. And that and, is a happiness that she can't bring to Psyche.
0: And when she talks to the fox, one of the things the fox asks is, you know, is she healthy? And exactly. had to, and, and Oral has to say, well, yeah, actually, I don't know where she's getting all her food, but she sure looks
1: good. <laughs> uh-huh. And, and the fox is, is a very logical, rational person. So he, said, he says things like, okay, well, you know, who, who, who took her out of the irons when she was um, exposed, when she was placed um, in irons to, to sort of stay and, and, and die under the elements. And, you know, Orwell has no answer. And, you know, he's, he's, he's rational. So he says, well, you know, it was probably a man, a man who lives on the mountain. There are vagabonds and outlaws and thieves who are there. But, you know, again, even if she's still not in her right mind, but she is happy and she's well taken care of. He, the fox recognizes that she still can't come back. Into the society that happily sent her to be sacrificed. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, and, it's, and
0: to be fair, after she was quote unquote sacrificed, things actually turned
1: around. The drought uh, lifted, yes. the plague went away. You should have mentioned that the rain began to fall almost immediately, which must have been so embarrassing. But, <laughs> but yeah, so you know, it's 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 really a case of people would have would have said, "Well, we did the right thing. Right. We did the right, right thing because here's the proof." So you know, you don't you you have a situation there where he, in all, in all of his rationality, accepts that she can't come back. And he says, well, you know, even if she, she is basically um, you know, living with some rustic, she's happy, she's healthy, and she doesn't have to deal with the madness of court and people who want to either worship her or kill her. And maybe we should accept that. But what happens is that Orwell can't accept that. She's like, you know, no, you know, she's, she's a princess and, and, you know, we can't have that happen. And if anything, I would rather see her dead. Yeah, she, and, gets him, and, she
0: goes to, I'd rather see her dead really yeah, fast.
1: Yes. I mean, she's of our house. The very being fast. of Psyche. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and, and the fox is appalled. The fox is, yeah, the fox yeah. is appalled. And he, as he says, you know, there's one part love in your heart, and five parts anger and seven parts pride. Love is reckoning. I don't know who he did that with. <laughs> But the point is he's saying there's very little love in a statement like that. There's Absolutely. very little love in a statement like that and you have to recognize that. So, you know, he... When he says all that and because he's such a rational person, um, Orwell also makes a decision not to tell him that she saw the palace in the mist. Right. But then she also later decides not to tell Bardia because she's even wavering about that because she knows that Bardia... It's sufficiently religious to believe her, but I think part of her also realizes that whether or not he believes her, it will not necessarily lead to conclusions that she wants, which is to say, somebody backing her up to take Psyche away from this situation, being the bride of the brute, whether that brute is divine or human. So, there we have it. Now, we did, Mm, should we discuss this bit now? What you were saying about how when she initially came and she just saw, you know, she saw no palace. She saw no palace. No, cup, I think we have no... to.
0: I, before we get circle back to that, I think we have to say what what all Oral uh, went and did. Okay, okay, because that that's important to show how you know how far Oral went over the edge. That's
1: that's a good point. Yes, so she does go back. And as in the fable, she goes back to convince Psyche to look upon the face of this so-called god. Because again, as in the fable, she does not see his face. But instead of it being a simple situation of persuasion, it becomes a situation of coercion because she's brought a knife with her. And at first you think she's taken the knife because she's going to kill Psyche, as she promised. But she actually threatens to kill herself. She puts the blade into a... Uh, into her arm and she cuts herself and she basically says you know if you don't do this i'm gonna hurt myself and then psyche is forced to say okay yes I, i'm going to find a way to get a look at his face but you've actually crossed the line here and it's never going to be the same between us and um that that is actually a bit where even when oral relates you can tell that she's she's just not proud of herself at all but that's yeah. the desperation that's the length that she's gone to so, um, you know, they—they, they, as I said, and it, it takes it that far because she, Psyche, won't be persuaded. They do have that conversation, and she tries everything she can by words to convince Psyche that the setup that she's in cannot be a normal one. And it really does take something as as drastic as threatening herself with a knife for Psyche to agree to have a look at her husband's face. Right. So then. What is the outcome? So that well, night that night, it's, it's sort of remove all doubt night <laughs> yeah. because, because um, what happens is that the, there's a great flash across the valley and lightning comes and trees are falling, and you know, there's, there's this, this huge storm. And basically. Um, basically what happens is that orwell actually sees the god. Right, right. And it was it was like it was it was just it was just an overwhelming moment. It was not it was not you know and, and this is the interesting thing. It says he made it to be as if from the beginning. I had known that Psyche's Lover was a god, and as if all my doubtings, fears, guessings, debatings, questionings of Bardia, questionings of the Fox, all the rummage and business of it all had been trumped up foolery, dust blown in my own eyes by myself. Right. You who read my book, judge, was it so? Or at least had it been so in the very past before this god changed the past? So it's it's this bizarre situation where she sees the God and in a way it's a a moment of ultimate truth and her illusions are stripped away and she actually realizes that in a way some of the questioning that she did wasn't because she didn't believe but that she believed that she didn't like what she knew. And what she knew was that there was somebody who was going to be taking away Psyche's love from her, the kind of love that she wanted from Psyche, that kind of complete attachment in a way that she could not compete with. So um, so uh, she, after she sees the god, she hears Psyche wailing. She hears Psyche crying in the night. And she says, I've never heard weeping like that before or after, not from a child, nor from a man wounded, nor a tortured man, nor a girl dragged off to slavery. If you heard the woman you must have most hated in the world weep, so you would go and comfort her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's unable to to go to her it's the the river has risen up and and when she's able to look at the valley at the daytime it's it's all it's devastated it's bare rock it's everything is just um complete mess and that is in the way the downfall of the palace now strictly speaking she never sees psyche alive again strictly speaking correct strictly speaking So what then happens after that, as we gallop along. Yeah, yeah, so fast forward a bit at this point. Is that um, the first thing that she does when she goes home is she veils her face. Now, she's very ugly. She's she's often been receiving various types of, of verbal and even physical abuse, not least from her father, because of the way she looks. Her father doesn't even consider the possibility of marrying her off to anybody because she's that ugly. Mm-hmm. Even Bardia, who has respect for her, she's overheard him saying, you know, it's a pity about her face because, you know, she's an honest girl and all that sort of thing. Right. So she, she knows, you know, but for some reason, you know, coming back from that trauma, that's when she actually puts on the veil. And she keeps it, even to the point of standing up to her father, who is, so, at first, he's like, you know, why are you wearing that? and um, And she actually for the first time, in a way, stands up to him. I should say the first time. I mean, of course, when Psyche was going to her death, she fought him as well. But she really stands up to him in a way that gets him to completely back down. And that's new. Yeah.
0: So and he, she he starts... takes her on, essentially, as, a, as an advisor.
1: Yes. Um, so she and the fox are, are kind of working together, and she's learning about statecraft in a very serious way. Which is helpful, because then the king, after all of the um, various amazing and dramatic things he's done, slips and falls on a step and breaks <laughs> his femur. <laughs> and it's it, the surgeon can't set it properly and eventually he declines and declines and they realize he's going to die. Of course, he doesn't have a son. So between the fox and Bardia and Orwell, um, it is decided that Oral is going to become queen. And one of the things that she does to... And, oh, sorry, and also they, they kind of... I shouldn't say plot, but they kind of also come to an understanding with the... Um, the priest who's going to become the new head priest of Unget because the old priest is also on his deathbed. So, you know, kind of church and state are in agreement and they start to move forward. But in order to get the people behind them as well, there is this interesting whole scenario, whole political scenario where Orwell ends up having a duel with um, the king of uh, a rival state and kills him. She wins, you know, <laughs> and um, his brother is you know, at least extremely grateful, you know, he, he gets the crown instead, and she quickly and conveniently marries off Redival to him, so everybody's quite happy. Right. <laughs> uh, eventually, Redival's second son is going to become her heir as well. So um, she, she really kind of makes a good start um, and, and begins to, to rule in her kingdom. And it seems like the as, kingdom, check,
0: check me on this, but it seems like the kingdom prospers reasonably well under her whole reign. It
1: does, it does. And it does in a way that's very interesting because this is clearly an extremely patriarchal um, kingdom. But she manages to rule it because uh, she, she, almost, she almost manages to rule it because they don't quite view her as a woman or they view her as something more than a woman. The right. veil and gives her a mythic status. Yeah, they the veil kind of, yeah, the veil really helps with that kind of yeah, myth making or legend making. Exactly. So it's initially when people knew her face, that she was so ugly that men, she said that men didn't think of her as a woman. But then after the veil and after the memory of her face kind of faded, um people began to focus on her voice and her voice was very compelling. And they also began to imagine what her face was like and it was either, you know, extreme beauty or extreme power. Um, and all of it, as, this, as you say, with this very mythic, iconic um, connotation, that, that only helped her in her image. So, um, you know, she's, she's basically doing very well. You can tell that she still thinks of, of, of Psyche a lot. And what happens is that, um, years and years later, she goes traveling. And she encounters a priest who, you know, quite candidly admits that he's a priest of a new religion. And as she speaks to him, she realizes that this is actually religion that appears to be based on Psyche. So he says, well, you know, let me tell you my scripture. And he sits down and he tells her the version of the tale that we know of as the original myth. So you have the two sisters who are evil and jealous and doing all that they can do to, to drag Psyche down. So when Orwell hears this, she's absolutely furious. <laughs> what really angers her is that in his account, he says, oh, and the sisters saw the palace. And she's like, what? What, what wait, are you saying? And, are, you know, you're sure they didn't just think they saw the palace. And he was like, no, no, they saw the palace. Now, she's never told anybody about this, remember? Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's like a double injury <laughs> that, that the, the one sort of point of contention that in a way she's hid from others and wrestled with within herself is now just being sort of broadcast um, far and wide by, by this priesthood scripture. So she's just absolutely furious. She rushes home and she begins to write her account of what happened her account of her epic love for Psyche and how the gods unfairly rip Psyche from her. And all of that is basically the book you're reading. Right. And, you know, so far, so good. She feels a sort of a sense of self righteousness about the whole thing. But then two things happen. Um, Redival in her Um, years of, in her time of looking for affection elsewhere, had um, been fooling around with a soldier who was, and they were unfortunately discovered by the king and the king um, very quickly and efficiently had the soldier castrated and expelled from the kingdom. But it turns out that it's an ill wind that blows nobody any good because a new eunuch managed to fetch up in the court of a greater king and became extremely powerful and he eventually goes back when um, Oral is queen. And at first she doesn't recognize him because so much time has passed and he's very changed. And then she's like, wait a minute. Now I remember who you are. And he's, he's kind of laughing. He's almost, he's actually very smug and superior because he definitely thinks that he's gone up in the world. <laughs>
0: right, right. Um,
1: but he, he reminisces a bit about her sister and he's like, yes, you know, I felt sorry for her because, and as he talks, what she hears from him the version that she hears is not, is not that Redival was, um, you know, the spiteful girl who tried to bring down Psyche because she was jealous and was just shallow and always thinking of men. The way he described it, um, Redival loved Oral, felt rejected when she kind of grew more attached to the and then felt completely shut out when she fixated on Psyche. And a lot of the kind of chasing after men thing was not only just getting affection, but even her fixation on who she was to marry is because marriage, in a way, was the only way to get out of the kingdom as a princess. So, you know, he, he kind of tells her this, this side of Redival that she's never even considered. And she is, she's in shock. She's in shock because it almost sounds like herself. You know, this idea that somebody rejects you and doesn't love you, mm-hmm. but she's actually somehow done it to someone else. And she says, I'll never forget this line, she says, you know, of Reddival, but she had her gold curls, hadn't she? <laughs> <laughs> so the idea was that, you know, you know, she, she's pretty, you know, she didn't have my ugly face, she didn't have my inconveniences. Um, what, what, would, what does she have to worry about? How did this happen? Mm-hmm. So she starts to question that a bit. And then... Bardia, because they're definitely getting on in age, the fox by then has already died of old age. And Bardia, um, he, he starts to decline, and he dies. And from the very beginning, Orwell has had a crush on Bardia, which in a way has deepened into love. But he's married. He was married when pretty much they first met. <laughs> and and he's also older, so, um, you know, as you said, he, he met her when she was a teenager. She's a teenager, she's a princess. He just never saw her that way, never saw her that way, was happy to show her how to use a sword, um, was happy to um, advise her, um, you know, ride with her into battle and so forth, um, ended up working very closely with her for, for very long hours, but always went home to his wife and, and never even thought twice about any other, any other thing happening differently. So she had a level of jealousy towards Bardia's wife for quite some time as well, which was tempered with a sort of a, a smugness as, um, because she said, you know, you know, this woman, you know, she's, she's born his children, she's shared his bed, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but I have his man's life, you know. I've, I've been with him when we were, we're, t- we're together in battle and, and I've done this with him, I've done that with him. She hasn't done any of that. So she had gloated with that before, and then when she goes to give her... Um, sympathies to Bardia's wife, Bardia's wife kind of snaps <laughs> and says, you know, you, you had this with him and that with him and you used him up and I had so little and, you know, almost throws back to her, into her face the same words that she gloated about privately. Right, right. And, um, and again, Orwell is, is in shock, you know, um, and says, you know, how can you be jealous of me? Look at this. And she rips off the veil and bardia's wife looks at her and instead of looking at the ugliness which was the point she says oh i didn't realize i didn't know you loved him too and at first there's this moment of fellow feeling where they fall into each other's arms and have a good cry but then kind of <laughs> reality yeah, so, that so, <laughs> <wrong. laughs> and um and uh, you know orwell says but do you really think that i i just used him up that i just you know and she was like yes, you know, I'm sorry, but that, that's what you did. You made a point of keeping him out later than he needed to be, keeping it up earlier than he had to be, um, you know, and he would never say no because his loyalty to you was absolute. His loyalty to the crown was absolute. And she said, well, you know, well, why don't you say something? I would have given him more time off and, and so forth. And, and his wife said, but, you know, he loved what he did. And I, I would not be the person who would stand between him and what he loved to do. And again, Orwell's having a kind of an epiphany where she's like, what? What's this concept? Yeah, of yeah wait, what do you mean? You
0: can, you can sacrifice some of your happiness for the happiness of another? Oh,
1: crap. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, kind of echoes of the fox saying to her, you know, look, if Psyche is happy, leave her alone. Right. And she couldn't do that then. And she's like, you know, find this lesson again of Bardia's wife. So now she goes into a, a state of it's almost say, almost like semi-depression and, and, and huge introspection where she's questioning um, how she's loved people in her life, whether she's even loved as truly as she has thought that she's loved. Because she now acknowledges that she wasn't there for Red She now realizes that she purposely, whenever she could, kept Bardia from his wife because she could, you know, mm-hmm. kept him just a little bit longer just because she could. She had that power. And so she kind of curls up with her book and reads about her love for Psyche again and tries to reassure herself. And meanwhile, she starts to have various sort of dreams bordering on hallucinations. One of them, in fact, a few of them, in fact, involving some of the same impossible tasks that Venus sets Psyche. Right, right. There's this interesting parallel thing where it's almost like um, Psyche is doing something and then Aura is almost invisible on the other side of the mirror, helping her to do it. So they they become almost like two halves of one person, in a sense. And eventually, she has a a sort of a full-on nightmare dream hallucination where she wakes up and her father is there. And her father, you know, is dead these long years. And he sort of drags her down to the underworld. They dig down the underworld, he drags her down to the hole. And she finds herself in what appears to be court, with various dead people around the foxes there again. And um, she's being allowed to present her complaint to the gods. So she's brought her book, you know, this is her book in which she's written about how much she loves Psyche and how unfair the gods were and so forth. And she's going to have the chance to say something about it. Now, they symbolically strip her naked. And I say symbolically, because that's very much an indication of she has to come with, with no mask, no veil, no illusions, not even anything that she's, like, trying to hide herself from herself. And she starts to read from her book, but then she realizes her book has vanished and all she has is a dirty scrap of paper. Mm -hmm. And she starts to talk and she means to to say all the marvelous and fine words that she's written in the book. And what comes out is a constant stream of repeated um, selfishness and jealousy and self-pity, where she's basically saying, you know, I loved her, you took her away from me, Um, you know, She she would have been nothing without me. I took care of her. I did this. I did that. You know, and and, and, and it just goes on and on and on. She almost can't stand to hear herself, but she can't stop because it's actually the truth. Mm -hmm. the truth is coming up. And they listen and they listen until they finally say, okay, enough. And the complaint is also the answer because she thought she was challenging the gods, but because in their presence only the truth can be revealed, she realized that she also had the answer in herself, which was that um, she didn't love as she thought she did. So, that is the other kind of core bit. And I'm going to pause a little bit because I want to discuss something there. Okay. There's a point at which she, especially when she learns about Redival and Bardia, she actually begins to be more scared about the possible ugliness of her soul mm-hmm. than she was ever afraid of the ugliness of her face. Mm-hmm. Because she's already learned from her experience with her face that human beings will not love you if you're ugly. And she's worried that the gods will not love you if your soul is ugly. And this is like a huge unfairness to her because, you know, there's always that, that cliche that, you know, so so is ugly, but they have a lovely personality. <laughs> and here she is in this situation where, you know, she can't even say that. You know, there's this, like, nothing in her for the gods to love. And why I found that particularly interesting is because another favorite of mine, which we will never be able to discuss here because it's not SF, is Cerno de Bergerac. Okay, yep, yep. Uh, and we all know about that. That's where um, Cerno looks ugly, loves Roxanne. Roxanne um, completely well, just thinks of him as a good friend and, and, and relative because they're cousins. But Roxanne falls to Christian who is handsome, handsome, handsome. Well, Christian is as dumb as, as a rock and can't put two words together. Right,
0: has nothing so Cyrano, in his
1: head. <laughs> <laughs> so Cerno steps up and, and contrives to woo Roxanne, with, um, on, Sir, on Christian's behalf, using his words, his, his intellect, and Christian and um, Roxanne eventually get married, but very soon after they're married, they go off to war. Right, Christian dies in the war. Wait, wait, not yet. And while they're at war, um, Cyrano keeps sending letters to Roxanne in Christian's name. Right. And then Roxanne says to him at some point, you know, um, I would love Christian, even if he were ugly even if you were disfigured. And Sereno's like, say what? <laughs> <laughs> and and by then, Christian realizes that Sereno has been sending these letters. And he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, and, and they have a discussion. And he's like, no, look, this has to stop because if I want to be loved for who I am or not at all, you know, and right now the way it's set up, she actually loves you because of all of the wooing and the letters and that I have had no input except for my face. <laughs> <laughs> and I found it amazing because the point is they're both at war and, and we're talking about, you know, well, war 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 in any age is not pretty. But the point is that the reason why Roxanne says, well, even if he's disfigured is because yes, yeah, somebody could come back from war severely disfigured. True but somebody could also come back from war severely brain damaged. Uh-huh. So, you know, Cyrano could be wounded so as to lose his intelligence and wit. Christian could be wounded so as to lose his looks. Who's Roxanne going to love then? Hmm. You know, it it, it really makes you wonder, you know, what is your motivation for loving somebody? You're just loving a good trait. And what if that trait vanishes through no fault of their own? Uh Uh-huh. Now, no, no, I don't have an answer. I just put that forward on the table. Right, right. (laughs) <laughs> but could you make the the connection in in that that you're seeing between Surno and Till we have faces a little more explicit? Because the 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 connection that I'm making is that um, Aural is questioning the beauty of her soul and whether, in a way, her she can work on her soul because she she starts talking about how when she was ugly she used to to do things to try to make herself less objectionable. Uh huh. She wondered if she could do things to make her soul more palatable to the gods. And in a way, she realized that this is actually beyond her. Uh-huh. So, but then what happens by the very end, um, and this is where we kind of go back into our summary, by the very end, she does find herself within her dream of hallucination, accepted by the god as another psyche. She actually looks into um, the, the, the river and sees the reflection. She's standing next to Psyche, and she sees two Psyches. She sees two equally beautiful women. And that appears to have been a, a sort of a free gift of the God, in a way, and not something of her own doing. And you could say it was symbolic, not just of... Well, it's, as I said, it's within the dream of hallucinations, so it's actually symbolic more of how her soul is necessary than the transformation of her face, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, that that bit was fascinated because that gives a sort of a divine aspect to, to how, how love is viewed and how um, and, and how she finds her redemption in a way. It's not through her own efforts. It's really it's really through How to explain it The word that springs to mind is grace Grace it is grace and it almost there's almost the implication, but I don't want to lean too heavily on this. There's almost the implication that um, the God intended this from the moment he saw her. But she was jealous of Psyche and trying to, to split them up. Mm-hmm. Because, hang on, I will find a bit. There's a bit where he says, you two will be Psyche. And at first it doesn't make sense to her. But in the end, she becomes like Psyche, um, sort of lovable, um, worthy of love. Uh-huh. And that that is that is her life's journey. That's that's her enti- it takes her entire life to get to that point. But it's it's a point of grace, it's not because of anything that she's done. Right, right. Okay. It's it's a bit hard to explain. It's something that can be debated at great length. Whew No. So I think I've come to the end of all my points, <laughs> but as I said, I've skimmed so much.
0: <laughs> I know, and, and, it's, and it's horrible because like, you know, every once in a while, I'd be like, I'd, I'd mentally be sitting there going, "Oh, and this happened," I'm like, no, no, we have to actually get to the end of this at some point. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, yes. There's, there's, like I said, there's some really meaty stuff with the king, and there's some great stuff as well in her interactions with Bardia.
0: Yeah, and, and, uh, and I love the way that, you know, the, the, uh, the, king's, the, king's patri- the king's misogyny is basically casually tossed
1: aside as wrong. And, and I appreciated that a great deal. And, and not only that, there's a sliver of sympathy for the king. Because Bardia says to her, you know, he's actually alright with the men. He's, he's great yeah. with the soul, But he's, he's frightened of women and, and priests. priests. <laughs> and politic men, which is basically her, the priest of Ungut, and the fox. <laughs> right. You know. So so she sees they will always see the worst side of him and his his violence and his bad behavior um stem from fear and uncertainty and just not knowing how to deal with these people. Right. So it's not it's not uh an excuse, but it's um it, it's a, it's an it's interesting an insight. insight. Yeah. Exact. So, you know, it's it's funny because and and the way he dies as well, you know, it's it's, it's just done in such a, a offhand kind of way as <laughs> if like to say, No, you don't even deserve a heroic death, you know. We're just gonna shuffle you off this mortal coil and then your, your ugliest, most rejected daughter is just gonna step into your shoes like that. You know, it's, and possibly, it's, um, and, and it's do, done in a way And do your job better. And do your job better, yes. <laughs> That that was that was done very nicely, yes. And what was also fascinating is Aural pondering her role as as queen, almost as warrior queen, um, in comparison to the regular women of her country. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, she, sometimes when she's comparing herself to to Bardia's wife, um, but you know, there's this there's this whole thing where you know she she says things like. You know, I I don't I don't allow myself to get attached to young things anymore. This is when she's talking about Brédeval's um, second son, who's supposed to be her heir. Yeah, the nephew. And, she's gonna right, and and you know, she actually kind of likes him, but she she decides she's not going to like bring him into the court and you know foster mother him and all that sort of thing because she doesn't want to get attached. And the idea is that from the time she lost psyche, she somehow cut herself off from any kind of attachment at that level.
0: Right, right, and and um. That that leads into something that's one of the things that set my teeth on edge about the narrative, and I understand why it's done, but it, it did just irk me. Uh, Oral has has such contempt for women who who do normal women things like get married yes. and have kids. Yes, and she and does,
1: and she does because there's that hint of jealousy about it.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's the same. It's it's part and parcel of the same thing that makes her want to destroy psyche. Instead uh-huh. of love her, or instead of let her go, it's it's that jealousy for what she can't have. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. you know, she every time she meets you know somebody like Bardia's wife or Redival after she's had kids, she goes, oh, and she you know she just went to pot. You know. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, oh, oh, yes. really? I mean, it's very catty. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. But you know, in fairness, in fairness, you do get the impression that there's a lot of all oh, the grass is green over the other side because there's Redival who you know, kind of gets married off to actually a pretty decent guy. It's implied that the prince doesn't really deserve to to be saddled (laughs) and credible as a wife. Um, And, you know, you you really do get the impression that Orwell kind of may affect to not really be jealous of her. But there's a point at which she sort of kind of flirts with the idea of marrying the prince herself. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, she's veiled. He can't see her. She's she's kind of interested.
0: Well, and not to mention, but, you know, she has so much power at that point yes. that what's, you know, what's an interested suitor going to say? No? <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> you, but, know, but just, you know, just
0: for political reasons, if nothing else.
1: Exactly. But then you see, here's the funny thing. They're still in a very patriarchal area. And there's a part of her, I think, that realizes that if she marries him, he's in a way going to have an edge over her. You know, even if they were to, like, join their kingdoms or whatever, you know, He's, he's still going to be seen as, as somehow slightly above her. Mm-hmm. And and there's a way in which she can um, maintain her her own power by remaining single. And, you know, this actually reminds me a bit of the um, first Queen Elizabeth. Right, yeah, the, yeah, absolutely. You know, who, who held the, the possibility of her marriage as a whole political card um, over people's heads for quite some time. But then there was always this challenge of, you know, you got to be careful who you marry because this could actually be politically disadvantageous for the country if they are then sort of above you in rank in a way. After the marriage. So um so yeah, there's this there's this whole thing where on the one hand, she's she's got this amazing um opportunity into a kind of power and freedom that women don't usually have Mm -hmm. but then on the other hand she's still sort of jealous of the the ordinary life in a way that they do have right but can't see a way to have both and sometimes doesn't even actually want both because even the people that she supposedly envies you can see their lives are not that great (laughs) Um, and there's definitely a strong sense of Marriage means, some, especially the case of princess, being taken away from home. Mm-hmm. Childbirth may mean death. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there there are all these dangers that beset this supposedly um, idyllic vision of, oh, you know, you just go off and get married and become a mother and have a family and everything's fine. You know, <laughs> so um, so it's it's interesting. She just she just goes back and forth on that, and it's. It's fascinating to me because very often, I think whenever we're given a, a main character for a book, we allow um, for great heroism, and we even allow for great villainy. But pettiness is not something that we're <laughs> invited to, to be part of. And what this book has actually done is, it has actually given you the myth fairly exactly. She mm-hmm. is in fact the jealous, spiteful sister who conspired to overturn her sister's happiness. Mm-hmm. But they have, you know, Lewis has sort of suckered you in, mm-hmm. <laughs> sucked you in and suckered you into um, sympathizing and identifying with her, even to the point where, in a way, she had to fool herself. Um, and, and, and made you realize that, you know, this, this, this is the kind of people we are. Sometimes the things that we do, you know, there, there's no full intent. There's no, there's no proper will to it. It's not even a huge villainy necessarily, but you know these little petty things are are the things that come from us when we're, we have that level of selfishness. So it's it's a it's a very eye opening kind of book, really. By the time you get to the end.
0: Yeah, and and one of the things that I'll give cred- uh, Lewis total credit for is um, you know when when the interstitial movement started popping up in in science fiction and fantasy, um, and one of one of the things I associate with that movement right way or wrongly is, um, people who, who did retellings of fairy tales and myth and brought a lot of psychological complexity to them
1: Yes. or, or,
0: you know, um, more societal complexity or, you know, just put a different spin on it. Uh, He, Mm -hmm. he was pretty much doing that before that was cool.
1: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's true. But, you know, again, you can see that um, threading through his previous works as well, very much in Narnia, you see Laha the the Greek myth. Oh, I should point out that um, that Orwell makes a point of, of writing her book in Greek oh, because yeah. she wants she 's hoping for it to kind of go back to the Greek lands. I get the impression that although the fox tried their language was um, was not very was not very was more of an oral language than a written one okay. So um, so she's, she's basically been educated in Greek through him, and, and that's how she writes it. So the implication is almost that her account is sort of going to feed back into the myth and they're going to reinforce each other a bit as well, mm-hmm. because um, somebody Greek is obviously going to pick it up at some point. I like, <laughs> I like the way, you know, it's sort of a um, myth becoming history and history becoming myth, that's that kind of approach. Right. But, right. but yeah, you know, you, you, get, you get the, the, the dryads and, and the gods and goddesses popping up in Narnia, and um, Lewis has always had this fascination with, with this um, Golden Age Greece thing. Right. So, in a way, well, this, this is where I kind of step back because I'm not uh, an inkling scholar. But, in a way, it's, you can see that this book is the culmination of a lifetime's interests and thought. And, right. Am, am uh, I given to understand that this was actually the last book that he published? The last book that he published, and the one that he said he thought was his best. Ha! Now, <laughs> my
0: my sister in law actually did quite a bit of Lewis or Inkling's scholarship in and for her master's degree. I think. Aha! Uh-huh. So it might be interesting at some point to to I don't know maybe have have her on maybe
1: and and talk about get get her take on this because that might be. I think that'd be useful because I feel sometimes as if I, I know a little bit about Lewis's background because yes, I've read his nonfiction, yes, I've even read a few like other accounts and letters of people who know his life. But as I said, I'm not a scholar and there really is a lot of context, not only in his interest in um Greek culture, but also even in his um his evolving sense of theology and and where certain things fit. Right, and she she might be able to give
0: me, especially, a little more context because I, I mean, I I won't lie, re- reading this book made me grumpy,
1: <laughs> and
0: and I think I think part of it is Lewis's name on the cover. I think that if I had picked this up and it were by you know um, John Brown, <laughs> John Brown, that I might have been I might not have been oversensitized to some of the things uh-huh, in it. Uh-huh. And I think I I was oversensitized, and um, and so the the bit where she, I I I still feel like the universe of the story was not playing fair with
1: her, right? And the whole that, bit about whether or not she should believe the palace. Whether or not she real. should have believed it right off the bat.
0: Now, right. And and this is one of my problems with it is that. There are two things going on with, with Oral. There's her motivation for wanting to destroy Psyche's happiness.
1: Yes. And,
0: and I think Lewis does a phenomenal job of portraying the kind of obsessive love that can turn destructive.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: I, I, he really does bring that to life. And, and in a surprisingly sympathetic way. I mean, Oral is a really interesting, complex character. Mm-hmm. And you can't just hate her for what she did, although what she did was hateful. Yes, mm-hmm. but wrapped up in it is this question of disbelief and unbelief. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and okay, so backing up a little bit and taking a broader view, you know how there's a classic XKCD comic where a guy makes a mistake in doing math and and you know somebody points at Lats and goes ha ha you made a mistake, and then mm-hmm. a woman makes the same mistake doing math and and you know the the person's like ha ha girls can't do math. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? Yes. So uh-huh. when you're, you know, so when, because unbelief is the minority position in our culture,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? I, I, and because Lewis's name, you know, Lewis being one of the most prominent Christian writers of the 20th century, um, mm-hmm. is on the cover, mm-hmm. I couldn't separate out that question from the other questions of Oral's personality.
1: Right, and right. so
0: it felt like he was saying, "Unbelievers aren't being honest with themselves. Unbelievers must have some other motivation for wanting other people not to be happy.
1: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. You know, unbelievers are just jealous.
1: <laughs> uh,
0: you know, they have some <laughs> psychic wound that's making them not see
1: why other people are happy." Well, the only thing that I think saves the book from that trap is the character of the fox.
0: And, okay, and and mostly, I agree with you, I love the fox, and he had the same viewpoint. He was probably, to my mind, one of the most... Well, he and Bardia, <laughs> right? They're two mm-hmm. sides of the same coin. They're practical men who are living real lives, who are just like, okay, y- yes, you might be... Y- yes, this is really weird, Bardia from a religious point of view, and, and fox from a materialistic point of view. It's like, mm-hmm. but you don't need to go overboard about this. right. But right. then, in that vision, in the court... Mm-hmm. The fox mm-hmm. has that ending monologue mm-hmm. where he basically says, you know, says to the judges, you know, this is this is partly my fault. I didn't teach her the nuances.
1: I, I'm sorry. I thought I actually meant in terms of the love, not the belief. But I don't know. It just didn't. It kind of
0: again, it's you can't you can't un you can't un intertwine them. You can't disconnect
1: them the way Lewis has written the story. To me, now, to me. Okay. This okay, this this is a fascinating this this is a, an interesting point of discussion because <clears throat> okay, when when Oral comes from her experience and starts to question the fox as to what happens, but carefully omits having seen the palace. Uh-huh. Um, what is interesting is that um, you're already beginning to get a sense of her starting to fool herself. I get the impression that the fox was always going to come to as you say, a sort of a sensible point of view. Right. Mainly because his love for psyche wasn't disordered. He didn't have the obsessive love. He was indeed quite happy to say, you know what, this might not be the best situation, but if you're happy and you're healthy, you know, we're gonna roll with it. Right, right. Um, now what happened with um, with Orwell, which was which was well, th- this is something you can go around in circles and of debate. You can ask yourself. When she left, was it necessary to show her the palace at all? Mm-hmm. Now, perhaps before she left, she didn't have enough information. And she would really have been like, no, no, no. The girl's completely insane. We got to drag her back, kicking or screaming or, or try and treat her or something of the sort. Mm-hmm. But because in a way, when you encounter her, she's actually midway between Bardia and the fox. She's not got the, the complete almost um, indifferent belief of Bardi who's like, yeah they're gods, yeah I don't meddle with them. Right, right. <laughs> um and she doesn't have the the point by point rationality of the fox. But um she, she she's got her doubts about She realizes there's some kind of power there, but she doesn't exactly know what's going on. And mainly for her, her religion is her love for psyche. That's the thing that she really knows and she really believes in.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So in a way sometimes I think the glimpse of the palace if it happened to some other person, would have been a way of saying, No, it's okay, see, she's fine. This is where she really is. Ah, uh, okay. And then disappeared. And the and the reason for the disappearance as well is because when she actually does see the god later on after she's affected with um Psyche's disruption, uh uh-huh. um, it's overwhelming. There's there's no there's no question of a doubt. Right. There's nothing at all to um you know it, it's, it's it's completely mind-blowing and in a way that's precisely what he always tries to avoid because that's why even though he's psyche's husband he says don't look at my face mm. you know there's there's this there's this sense of um and 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 why i find this fascinating is because the book is called till we have faces right the bit at the end where she's, she's confronting the gods, and she says, I wondered why the gods keep themselves hidden. Half a second. I think i got to read this. So. Actually, I think, I think I've got it here.
0: Um, but no, you, you start where, where you were going to start. Um, it's the bit that ends, how can they meet us face to face till we have faces?
1: Yes, yes. I saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly, nor let us answer. So that word, and she means the word that's inside of us, um, can be dug out of us. Why should they hear the babble that we think we mean? How can they meet us face to face till we have faces? So this is her, this is when she realizes, for example, she's just uttered her entire complaint that she thought was the book of how she loved Psyche and how the gods did her wrong. and And then when the truth came out, then she began to realize, well, you know, this is why I couldn't communicate with the gods because... I I I wasn't even you know I was I wasn't even aware of my own self right and it's right know. after that I was that, I was veiled to myself
0: and it's right after that that the fox has his monologue and one of the mm-hmm. things he says in there is when he's recounting his own failures as a teacher he said I never told her why the old priest got something from the dark house that I never got from my trim sentences she never asked me, I was content she shouldn't ask, why the people got something from the shapeless stone which no one ever got from that painted doll of Armand's. Of course I didn't know, but I never told her I didn't know, I don't know now, only that the way to the true god is more like the house of unget And what he's ta- talking there is one of those things that we skipped over real fast in the summary, right. which is that Unget was this uh, was this stone, almost like right. a lingam stone. Um, Mm -hmm. and after, um, Oral took over from the king, there was also a change of power in the priesthood of Unget And the new guy was more in, more influenced by the Greek, uh, uh, how do you say the Greek practices as, Mm -hmm, as, mm -hmm. uh, transmitted by the fox. And he went with more of a, a traditional, um, representative sculpture. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that, and, and most people are like, yeah, yeah, well, but the real goddess (laughs) is still in the stone back there in the corner. Exactly, yeah. And, and yeah. so
1: again, you know, he's... He... But hang on, the bit that he says right after that, he also says, oh, it's unlike too, more unlike than we yet dream. Right, right. So, so he says, he says, okay, the way the go- the tr- the way the true gods is more like the house of Angit, but it's also unlike too, more unlike than we yet dream. So the, what that's actually saying to me is not that he's kind of apologizing for having misled her, but he's a, he's apologizing for... Um, not showing to her that there was this this possibility, this glimmer, this something that would have even some. If he had said it, she might have, for example, felt um, ready to say to him, "Oh, I saw this palace." For example, okay,
0: right, right. But but um, what, what I'm what I'm saying is that in that passage, which means in the character of the fox, uh-huh. the question of orals. Personality and the question of her belief continue mm-hmm. to be entwined. Her motivations and her unbelief are completely conflated.
1: I thought you said that her love and her unbelief were conflated. You meant her motivations and her belief? Uh, yeah, I think that's what I meant. Oh, okay. Then I, sorry, then I was off on a slight, slight tangent. Okay, okay. Okay. Um, okay, her motivations and her belief. Her motivations and her belief were entangled... If so, then only briefly, because there's a point at which she very much knew what she was doing. Which if, point? When the god appeared to her. Right, but after the, but then it was too late. Then it was too late, but he appeared to her, and remember she said that it was almost like he changed the past and let her see that she'd always been, she'd been purposely fooling herself. That the, the glimpse of the palace, in fact, had been enough that she knew that it was a god, but that she purposely was so jealous of the god that she still wanted to do anything possible to get Psyche back.
0: Right, right, but the way the story's presented, and and I think we also need to talk a little bit about unreliable narrators. But the way the story's presented, she was completely rational when you know when when she's getting berries on a leaf and and water from cupped hands,
1: and then Psyche says, "But I served you food on a plate and, oh, and a goblet of wine." That, that bit, but not a doubt. But but when you talk about her motivations, her motivations, I think. Start more from um, when she starts to go home. I mean, you're basically saying that by the time she's she's concerned about um, psyche's well-being, about what psyche is seeing that she herself cannot see, right. that that she starts from then thinking about you know what to do. But it's not until after she's seen the palace that she begins to talk about things like like killing her. Or, or Oh, you actually,
0: know... oh, oh, no, wait. I just noticed this when we were talking about the dungeon, the scene in the dungeon before Psyche goes to the mountain. Okay. Um, oh, let me see if I can find it. I didn't bookmark it. Hang on. Oh, here we go. Uh-huh. Uh, unfortunately, you and I have different editions, so I can't call it a page number, but it's the beginning of chapter eight. I've
1: got it. I've got it. I've got okay. it. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, hmm oh, right, if there's a real shadow brute and I cannot save her from it, I'll kill Kill her with my own hand hand before I leave leave her
0: to its clutches.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, okay, she did say that, but this is the thing. Before she saw the palace, there was no evidence of a shadow brute. She just thought that Psyche was possibly insane. Right. After she saw the palace, that was when she began to think that there might be a shadow brute or god or whatever, and then she still starts thinking of killing. So it's still killing in response to the presence of a god as opposed to is there a god or isn't there a god? Oh
0: okay. But but this gets I guess my my thinking on it is that it it gets back uh I think that we talked a little bit about this um but in a different context. Uh, maybe not on one of the podcasts, but I was asking about myth versus fairy tale. Right, yes. And and this story feels very fairy tale to me the the original Mm -hmm. the core psyche story right there's a there's there she's in a house and and there's a a husband and and there are rules that she doesn't understand right you know these kind of arbitrary rules oh you you can't see my face and oh you can't invite this person but you can invite that person that kind of that kind of thing right uh-huh. and and even the fact that once she's once she's banished, she goes and she has these tasks that she has to complete i mean you know it's all very you know there there's a lot in common with a, with a lot of european fairy tales right
1: yes, yes, and a lot of, a lot of myths do in fact reappear as fairy tales right right absolutely
0: i it's almost they're they're almost two sides of the same coin in a in a way myth and myth and fairy tale they're really closely related i understand mm-hmm. but it it feels like the universe wasn't playing fair with Oral that it didn't let her make a conscious choice. Now I and it, and I understand that what Lewis is saying is that her her own motivations clouded her perceptions.
1: I would actually say that it wasn't so much that her motivations clouded her perceptions; it was that she so disliked her own motivations that she changed her perception in order to live with it.
0: Now, the, Okay, so now that would indicate an unreliable narrator who... And that's exactly what I think she is. Sorry, an unreliable narrator well, who... No, oh. She is not But of course, every narrator's unreliable about some things and not others. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, I, I don't think there's anything unreliable about her conversation with Bardia's wife, for instance.
1: Right, right. right?
0: Mm-hmm. Um... And there's nothing presumably unreliable about that glimpse of the palace she saw across the river. She's mm-hmm. probably telling the truth about that, right? Yes. So, I, I, I don't quite see why she wouldn't be telling the truth about the berries and the, and the water.
1: No, I think she's telling the truth about the berries and the water as well. I'm just saying that, um, you're saying that, in a way, it, it questions her belief. The book questions her belief that her belief is a, an issue for um, debate, in a way, or a challenge. Right. And what I'm saying is that, that her initial encounter with Psyche, she was only presented with things that would make her think that it was completely normal, natural, non-divine world. That's not in doubt. Uh-huh. What is in doubt is if, after having seen the glimpse of the palace, did she really go forward saying, well... No, that was, that was just a hallucination. Or does she actually really believe at that point?
0: Ah, uh, okay. And you I, think, and I, I think I see the thing. I think you and I are talking past each other. Because okay. I think that you and I see points of departure in two different places in the story. Right, okay. So for me, the key bit is the berries and the wine. Mm-hmm. And for you, it's the glimpse of the palace across the river.
1: Well, this is interesting because that's the only thing that Lewis changed about the myth. and the original myth, the sisters see the palace right, and they go no, into the
0: palace, they're there, they're being feasted and whatever, and they go, ah, she, I'm so jealous of her, I just
1: can't stand it. Right. So there, that is, a, that is an absolute. Now, I think, and, and this is probably where the Lewis scholar would help, yeah, but I think yeah. that one of the reasons that Lewis complicates the story by making it seem one way first and then only giving her the glimpse, the palace afterwards, is that... You then get an interesting debate about um, about the ways in which you fool yourself. He would not have been able to do that interesting story about how she hid from her own motivations if he had just allowed her to walk in and see the palace all right.
0: No, no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. He couldn't have told the story he told and, and had it be obvious from the beginning
1: yeah yeah so i think that but the universe just doesn't work that way (laughs) Ah. (laughs) that's and this is where but you see this is a universe told by an unreliable narrator who is grieving and trying to justify certain things to herself and to other people because she keeps saying you know reader judge judge between you and judge between um the gods and me she keeps saying that yeah every time she raises that point she's like you know well, why didn't, why didn't they show me the castle palace in the beginning? Um, why did he change the past to make it seem as if I always believed? What, I mean, when you hear somebody talking about somebody changed the past, you know that they're really going into deep, deep denial. <laughs> yes, you know? yes, absolutely. So, but so she does but all that. But that's one of the things. The, the so, most... so when you talk about the universe, in a way, it's like the universe as she perceived it. and not necessarily the universe. That's why I can't quite think of it as a fairy tale thing. If it had been third person. I can debate this happily, but because it's first person and it's really all filtered through not only her perception, but her memory and what she chooses to want to remember. Uh Uh-huh. That is what makes me go, well, you know, the the only... But the
0: narrative places the blame solely on her and none on the gods. How about, or am I misreading? I might be misreading that. How do you read it? Um, okay, the blame for the blame so for that uh well the blame for her <sighs> the the blame for her threatening Psyche and getting Psyche banished, I think is truly centered on her. Her and and again it's her her obsessive love that turns to hate um yeah. or turns destructive, I should say. Yes. I've got no issue with that. That's all on her.
1: Okay, good, But
0: good. the scenario that allowed her that doubt, that didn't let her, that didn't show her the palace up front,
1: right, that so was... So, that's where I think we have our point of departure. Yes. You're insisting there was doubt. I'm, I'm actually saying that the fact that deep down there was no doubt is where the entire story hinges. Yeah, see, I think her doubt's legitimate. The way I read it, I think her doubt's legitimate. But whether or not her doubt was legitimate, the point is, did she have it? And what I read from her own kind of going back and forth and, and, um, you know, saying one thing and then saying another, is that when it comes down to the very end, she admits to herself, I didn't doubt. I'd convinced myself afterwards that I doubted so as to help cover my motivations. But the reality Uh. is I didn't doubt. Okay, see, I just did not read it that way. I think there are a few times where she pretty much says it all right. Yeah, she does, she does, absolutely. But I, I don't know. I just, I guess I can't. I so couldn't... you're you're saying that she's actually fooling herself. Um, she's 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 fooling her. It's a double. It's a double. It's a double trick then. She's actually doubting that she doubted herself. Is that what Yeah, she's yeah, good. basically. Basically, and but again, there's, it, it there's, all comes down there's to There's actually that. less evidence for that than there is for her. <laughs> um, you no, know, seriously. I mean, as I said, we're, all, we're also filtering it through her, her, her tale. But you, you have to take another loop if you're going to say that she's fooling herself into believing that she fooled herself. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, no, there are a lot of layers. There are a lot of layers
0: to this book. I won't lie.
1: Mhm. <laughs> How long have we talked? Did we manage to to tighten it up? Did we, you know, not go too yeah, far? Yeah, yeah, no we,
0: we yeah. Um so we we should probably wrap it up around here. We're we're getting to about an hour and 20.
1: Um <laughs> we're going to have some questions for our for our inkling scholar. Let's put it that way.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, I think I can talk her into um into coming on the podcast with us. So we might have a we might have a supplemental to to this podcast and and actually bring in somebody who knows a little bit more (laughs) uh, context.
1: It would be Um, interesting to know not only perhaps what Lewis said he intended, mm -hmm. but also to hear what academics in later years have, have decided on on analyzing the thing. This this yeah, to me is literature. This is the this is the kind of literature that I say to myself, hmm, I don't have any post grad qualification in English literature and I can feel it now. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> because, yeah. Because and it has that much of, of depth and layers and so on to it and requires so much of knowledge of, of some context and, and um and, and background and whatever. Yeah and, so, and
0: presumably in the subsequent I guess my this book has got to be sixty years old now. So I'm I'm sure there's come to be some some consensus. Yep.
1: Uh, about it. So that would be that would be absolutely fascinating well, to, here's to find Africa out. and census and English literature. Even I know that much well, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's lot, Some new school will come and overturn something, but but it will be fascinating to see what the different schools say. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely So,
0: um, so yeah, okay, so let's let's see if we can get um, If we can get my my sister-in-law on and and what she might have to say We'll wrap this up for now mm-hmm. Um, I will say, for as much as reading this book made me grumpy while I was reading it, i I absolutely agree that it is well, is a much more interesting book now to me <laughs> than it was an hour and twenty five minutes ago. <laughs>
1: uh-huh. Yes, so, I want people to read it and assess for themselves, yeah, um, yeah, I, absolutely. I, I, I get that. This is literature in the truest sense. There are going to be multiple readings and multiple interpretations. Right, and we've The main said before, thing is don't let the name Lewis scare you off. Right, right. But but we
0: have said before, the, one of the keys of, of great art is that it supports multiple readings. And that appears to so once again be the case.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly.
0: Huh, yeah. So okay. maybe we should talk a bit about part two. Yeah, yeah. So this is the end of season two, part A. Um, after this and, and hopefully we can arrange something, like I say, a little supplementally a supplemental podcast to this one. Um, but after this, uh, dear listeners, I think we have to go meet some deadlines. <laughs> oh boy. Do <don't> we ever <laughs> do I have, I can't speak for you, but yeah. <laughs> well, I've, I've, I have turned in the, the revised version of my, of my Egan book, but I imagine there will be more edits yet to come. Um, and, and then I've got all this WorldCon stuff, uh, barreling down at me.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, so
0: yep. um and i know you've got plenty of writing on your plate
1: plenty of writing absolutely
0: so but um, we've got some cool stuff ahead we've got some gene Wolfe. we've got gene Wolfe. we've got Cordwinner smith which yep. we'd already agreed on but is now by popular demand Oh <laughs> <laughs> yes i noticed that uh we're gonna and, be sorry go on well and and we're also going to be talking about uh, some of the more recent eminent eminences like
1: uh vandana singh and ken lu Because we're doing math yes. So we're looking at how uh, mathematics becomes the focus of fiction. Not just science fiction, but mathematics fiction. So we have um, Napier's Bones by Daryl Murphy. We have Flatland by Edwin Abbott. Mm -hmm. Distances by Bandana Singh. And Single Bit Error by Ken Liu. Right, and I
0: suspect I will be on much more solid ground when I discuss those stories.
1: <laughs> when... Listen, we, we all open this way. Anytime I think I'm on solid ground with these things, it always shifts at some point during a podcast. Trust well, True me. that, true <laughs> that. So, um, so we
0: should be starting back up in June. I hope people will join us then. The reading list is on the website, or on SF Signal, and uh, thanks as always to SF Signal for hosting our podcast. Yay, and um, so, yes, hopefully we'll see everybody again in June. And, of course, if we pop up in April or May with an with a ancillary, I hope people will tune in and listen to that as well.
1: Yes, we'll give you good warning. Absolutely. Okay, so, then. Okay. Take care. Take care.